Everybody, 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 drop your stop, 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 Welcome back to Drop Your Buffs. I'm Sean Ross. I'm Evan Ross Katz. And we are continuing our White Lotus coverage. I say continuing because despite the fact that there is a finale, we still have more that we want to share about the White Lotus uh, in in this month of December. Very excited to keep talking White Lotus, but here we are at the finale, episode seven, Arrivederci, and all the mysteries are solved, I think. All the loose ends are tied up. Mm. Maybe we'll identify some that aren't. Evan, what are your high-level thoughts on the finale here of White Lotus Season 2? Well, let me ask you this. Like, I've had this, like, feeling since I woke up this morning because I knew we were going to be recording around this time. And so it was, like, a combination of, like, wanting to see everything that people were saying and wanting to listen to all the podcasts and read the postseason, you know, interviews and postmortems and think pieces, etc. While also like rewatching the episode several times and then formulating my own thoughts and then thinking, well, which are like worthy of like, you know, conversating with you about. And then like, there were so many like voice memos I almost sent to you throughout the day. And then I was like, no, save it for the pod. So anyway, this moment here right now feels like I have like, I have something brewing in me and it's like, got to get out. And so I'm really excited to talk about this, but um, but to answer your question, uh, wait, so are we asking high level season two or episode seven specifically? I want to hear your high level thoughts on the finale, the wrap up. Okay, good, 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 good. Because I need some time to sort of sit with, you know, my overall thoughts on season two. And I've also saw some people doing the like, oh, season two or season one, like which, which do you prefer kind of thing? And it's like, it is way too premature for that. I'm not even a big fan of that conversation at all, but that is like way too premature. Like there's recency bias. You got to sit with both of these things. And I also feel like season one, although it was a year ago, is very out of mind, out of sight as far as like the smaller moments within the show. I think people more remember the big moments and the themes, but less like some of the specific tete-a-tetes that happen. Okay, episode seven takes a deep breath. Um, I mean, I just thought it was like, it was an event television that I can't remember the last time I've experienced. You and I were texting about it. You mentioned um, the Game of Thrones finale, which is interesting and, and surely correct. It's just, that's something that's like not in my cultural diet. So that was not something I was aware of. And then Super Bowl, similarly, like we're gay. So the Super Bowl has a sort of, doesn't hold the, the meaning that I think it does for many other Uh, or for non-gay people, or, you know, gay people can like the Super Bowl. But this just, like, felt like something. I don't know. Did you feel it in the air yesterday? Oh, absolutely. And I've been very surprised about the event that it became, because it's like, it's just the White Lotus. Like, we've been through this with season one. It's a great show, but what is it about this show that has attracted so much attention and so much discourse? We've had other big talking point shows in recent years, but 
something about this feels like everybody is watching it and you had to watch what you said at work today Mm -hmm. in case somebody hadn't seen the episode. And I just don't remember that truly since the Game of Thrones finale. You always had, I mean, you had your big shows, but they were in your like niche audience where it's like oh oh I okay somebody I work with watches this or like these two friends I have are really into this just like I am but it's like this show every single person I know is invested in the outcome of all of these characters journeys this whole season and I wonder how much of that was rooted in the murder mystery component because obviously there was something to anticipate from the outset of this season of that would culminate in this episode. Like we knew where we were going. We just didn't know. Well, actually we didn't know where we knew. We, we knew the route rather, but we didn't know exactly where we were going. That's maybe perhaps the better metaphor. Um, and yet for me, I've always been sort of confused, not confused. I get it, but I, I've always been sort of frustrated by people that ding people like me about the quote unquote spoilers, because yes, there are some spoilers that like, for instance, Tanya is now dead. That is a major spoiler. But a lot of the times when we're just sharing simple memes of like Jennifer Coolidge saying things like those gays are, well, maybe that's a, that's borderline uh spoiler. Okay. Yeah. But like there are certain moments in the show that I do not think rise to the level of spoiler that I think people just feel this like, it's like because people missed it when it first aired, they feel like everything about it is a spoiler rather than like the reveal of like plot details. It's more just like this show has this um, way in which people not only want to consume it immediately, but want to discuss it immediately. And then in turn, as a result, there's a whole culture around people that get frustrated at the immediacy of the conversation because we talk about water cooler shows of the past, you know, you had a night to digest them, right? Like it would happen. And then it was like the next morning, whereas this is like 10, 15 PM, it begins. And it's kind of like, it might not necessarily be spoilers you're dodging, but like the discourse is rapid. And as you said, because this seems to be a show that like is just so on everyone's lips, there's so much discourse to like parse your way through. This whole spoiler thing, I've been very confused about all season that you've been getting shit online for posting your screenshots. I get it for the end. I get it for the death because there is this murder mystery death or, uh, uh, you know, in season one, yeah, it's, a, it's a more like a manslaughter situation. But, you know, th- there is a death that is couched as a murder mystery. And I get not wanting that spoiled. But it's like the episodes in between, like this is a very character driven show. It's a very dialogue driven show. And it's not a very bombastic show in terms of those big touch points in each episode. Those touch points are more relational. And so it's like, I don't see those getting spoiled in screenshots. It's really something that you have to experience. And seeing an out-of-context screenshot makes it really difficult to spoil those moments. So that I've never like really fully understood. But I understand the broader no spoilers culture. I get that. Right, right, right. But it's like screenshots from the White Lotus, really? Well, I mean, I think a part of it is like people like having a thing to be mad about, right? Like I think there's just that component to it. But, you know, you and I were briefly talking earlier. For those of you that like are new to this podcast because of the White Lotus, it's like Sean and I have to like temper ourselves with how much we talk about a thing in advance because sometimes after like a Survivor episode, like 
maybe to like one or two tweets, but it's like, hold it for the pod. But we did a little bit of talking about the fact that like, and Mike White's been so explicit about this in the few interviews he's done. He's not really invested in the murder mystery. He purposefully inserted the murder mystery in this because he realized that he knew exactly what it would do. And it's went and done that. Like he knew the fact that people would be curious about who it was and that that could, you know, dominate the conversation. And I think he had a guess about that in season one and then it was confirmed and it made him move forward and say, okay, what are the things that are going to tie the show together besides the actual hotel? I'm going to make it this murder mystery. And so much of the discourse has been about who is going to die. um, When really now that we know it was in plain sight always, which is especially thinking about the tarot reader, which is the most Mike Whiteian thing of all. It's almost like I'm sort of, not annoyed, but like I'm frustrated with myself for like going down all of these purposefully misleading paths um, without thinking about who Mike White is and the fact that like, yes, as he stated, he's not interested in, he loves putting the misleads out there, but this is not ultimately a murder mystery show. This is a show about people and relationships and sexual politics and who is murdered is is very ancillary, but funny enough, it's it's dominated the conversation so much around the show. Yeah, I was saying to you that the point of watching these shows for me, and when I say these shows, I mean The White Lotus and Survivor, is not the end of the show for me. It's any time that I'm watching something that is a murder mystery or Survivor, a reality show where there is one person crowned the winner, It's never about the end. It's like, I almost don't care who wins or who dies because that is almost always anticlimactic. In this case, I don't think it was anticlimactic, actually. (laughs) I thought it was very climactic. But in most cases, it kind of is for me. I think about Big Little Lies, for example. Did I really care the way that all of that turned out and who pushed who and like who was in on it? I didn't really care. The journey was more so like getting there and getting to know these characters. And I feel that way very much about The White Lotus and that like, do I care who died or how they died? As I'm watching, not really. I'm like just so invested in how these relationships are developing because the writing is so strong and the dialogue is so strong and these characters are so well developed. That's what I'm in it for. It's much more of a, if I'm to compare it to other prestige TV, it's much more of a six feet under for me where it's like, yeah, along the way you're going to lose characters, but it's really about the dynamics of the characters we have in the moment. And that's what's propelling it forward. And I feel like when you're propelled forward by that sense of either dread, which I got a lot in The White Lotus, or sadness, or, you know, investment in uh, their outcomes, if I'm talking about Lucia and Mia, for example, that is so much more gratifying than finding out the results of the mystery to me. Yeah. And I I still feel this way, despite the fact that I'm saying like this one, this one happens to have a really climactic reveal in terms of the death. But when I think back on the white Lotus season two, that's not the main thing I'm taking away. Yes. Concur. And I think uh, big little lies is such a great example because it's like, you know what they did, so you need all of those episodes in the lead up to like imbue them with enough humanity to say, 
these aren't just like murderous women. These are just real women who happened to murder someone. So you need all of that space in there to develop who they are as everything outside of murderers. Like that part doesn't ultimately really matter. That's a moment in time for them. So yeah, totally aligned on that. I think, um, you know, just speaking briefly about the, the, the climax, which I know we'll come back to, you know, uh, as we work through this <laughs> sequentially, um, if you were to think of like the big images from this season, um, you know, obviously it's like we've got the prosthetic cock in episode one. We have uh, Will Sharp, who plays uh, Ethan. We have his pubes in episode two. We have uncle and nephew, air quotes, uncle, air quotes, nephew fucking in episode five. Um, and I really do think this episode gave us two, um, one of which being... Coolidge crying hysterically with a gun, and then the other being Coolidge's body in the water. Um, of those two, if you had to canonize only one, which would you choose? For me, it's Coolidge with the gun. I think that that has been immediately seared into my brain. And I just thought that the way that they were so tight, it wasn't tight on her face, it was tight on sort of like the bust, right? So like the the shoulders and up with that gun pointed right at the lens, but so shaky and the camera work was equally shaky, but not in a way of like a, it wasn't, it wasn't like a head cam, right? Where it's, it's matching her. That, so you're like really disoriented in that moment and paired with her vocal performance, which is the only way I can put it with her sighs and her moans. And there's, they were so desperate and so emotive. I just thought like that was a very, very uh, effective way to put the audience sort of off kilter with the character in that moment. And by not showing us where the shots were landing until after she was out of bullets, it was anything could have happened. I thought, well, she's missed everybody and now they've got her. And I had this moment also where it was just so disorienting that I thought, is it possible that she was wrong about everything? And mm-hmm. so it, like all of this was going on in my head as I'm watching this very disorienting sequence of her with this gun pointed at the camera. And I think that that image was really something I never expected to associate with Jennifer Coolidge and is the only thing I'm going to associate with Jennifer Coolidge moving forward is so powerful. Especially thinking about the Tanya that we met in season one and this journey we went on. And I think I'm not the first to say this by a long shot. It's been a slow journey with Tanya this season. Um, I think it took us a while to sort of like get her in gear as a character because If I were to criticize uh, one aspect of this season, I do feel like I wish that Tanya's journey with the gays would have happened a little sooner um, because we sort of got a lot of like Tanya wallowing, which is something that I thought we got a lot of in season one. So I feel like that beat that was struck in episode three was something that was just a little too familiar. But all of that said, you know, there's a lot of conversation happening about awards, which is funny because like, we care about awards and we don't care about awards. We think they're bullshit, but like we do love to do the tweet that's like, so-and-so needs her Emmy now. I'm guilty of that. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of conversation with uh, Aubrey, who is nominated for the Golden Globe as of this morning, as is Coolidge. And obviously, obviously, a lot of conversation with Megan Fahey, who I think has been sort of the breakout star of this season by way of like the fandom going crazy for them. But I think that that final scene with Coolidge 
I do think that secured her second Emmy. And I do think that was like absolutely remarkable to watch. Uh, I just, all I could think while I was watching that scene was that nobody else could do that scene and have it land the way that it did with Coolidge, which is that it's like absurd, but like she's having a mental breakdown, but it's like kind of funny, but it's scary, but it's like it, 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 it builds anxiety in you, but it's like exciting because it's like imagining Coolidge as James Bond, which is something I never thought whatever happened and and then you're scared for her as the character as to like what's going to happen next and the the ramifications of everything and you're also like questioning it's like Tanya is one of those characters that like goes in and out of lucidity. Um, you know, you, you have that scene when she's on the phone with Portia and she starts to piece everything together and begins to formulate a plan. She goes and talks to, uh, Tom, Tamiso, Tamiso, the, the, the knit cap wear up top. And like, that's a smart thing to do. Um, and when she runs away and grabs the bag, that is seemingly a, a smart thing to do. And yet with her demise, it's like, she just wasn't able to all the way get there. But like watching that, all play out. I mean, it's a funny thing because Tanya, I think the goodwill is much more towards Coolidge than Tanya. Tanya's not a great mm. person. We talked about that during our recap last week, but like, I don't know. Like I, I feel a little bit of a loss today. Um, and maybe it's more just knowing Coolidge will not, will I should say likely not continue on in the white Lotus universe. But like, I don't know, like, I wasn't rooting for Tanya. That's not really the way I would like frame it. But like, I, I'm sad to see her go out this way. And yet it is like the most Tanya slash Mike White <laughs> way to go out. It couldn't have really happened any other way. I have to pat myself on the back because just last week I said, I think Jennifer Coolidge would want to die on screen. And I feel like this is the on-screen death. If indeed she did want to die on screen, this is the on-screen death that she only could have hoped for in her wildest dreams. I think this is the best case scenario for a Coolidge on-screen death. But it's interesting because there was a tweet fired off by Angelina Keeley of Survivor David versus Goliath fame, who appeared uh, as a cameo in the first episode and in this episode um, as a beachgoer who uh, speaks briefly with Daphne. And, and Angelina tweeted this morning saying that Jennifer was very reticent to shoot that scene and really tried to convince Mike to have her survive, to have the have her fall off the boat and somehow make it through. Um, which is very interesting to like hear details like that. It does track with the Jennifer Coolidge that I know. I can kind of see it both ways. I hear what you're saying about like her wanting to have that death, but I also feel like if I were an actor who is at Jennifer Coolidge's stage of their career and who gets this opportunity that is both critically acclaimed and culturally acclaimed, which are two very different things, and she's got both right now. The idea of having like this finality to the moment that you were able to prolong into something that like many others couldn't, like you were given the second go at the thing, to know that it like is done done, I imagine that that I have to I think that would be difficult for anybody like but especially someone 
Like Coolidge, who I know has a connection to this character of Tanya um, and some ways in which they are quite similar. They're not, um, you know, equals by any measure. Jennifer is not Tanya, but I imagine there's like a sadness there to like say goodbye to this character in the normal way that like any actor who plays a character probably feels sad to let them go, but especially in this instance. For sure. And I have to say, as much as you say that it's in in character for Jennifer Coolidge to maybe, you know, want both things at the same time and, and want to be somehow magically revived at the end of the episode. It's also very in character for Angelina Keeley to fire off this tweet and sort of like reveal something quite personal to Jennifer Coolidge and yes. Mike White from the set of The White Lotus. Very in character for Angelina. And especially funny because Angelina for it frustrates me to no end, but like does not have a big social following. And like any the, the most random person in the middle of Boise, Idaho can sound off a random white lotus tweet and it will go viral. And yet Angelina, who is like of survivor fame and is a part of the White Lotus canon, her shit just does not blow up. So I read that this morning, and like you would think that would be. I mean, I would even think that would get aggregated in news stories to me. It's like that big of a reveal to me. Um, but Angelina's able to just like fire this stuff off and like have it sort of just go into uh, out into the ether and, and not really go anywhere. So it's strange. Um, but God bless Angelina Keeley. Okay, I would like to get into some specifics on what's going on for these characters in the finale, how their stories are wrapping up. Maybe we can start with the first batch of characters we really get story from, which for me is Albie, Dominic, and Bert. This three-generational group of men who have come to Sicily with the intention of returning to Bert's ancestral homeland, and it doesn't go as planned. And I think a lot of things aren't going as planned for these guys. And here we have Albie waking up with Lucia, right? And going to his father and asking him to transfer Lucia 50,000 euros, which on its face is psychotic to do. <laughs> I mean, Dominic tells him he's a mark and he's a huge mark. And ultimately he does it, right? And I think that Albie's words of a karmic payment and his promise of putting in a good word for his dad with his mom, voiced by Laura Dern. Voiced by Laura Dern. Voiced by Laura Dern, but... But not played by Laura Dern in picture form. Uh, uh, yeah, and can we divert for one moment because I have a theory about this, and it's that for anybody who has not yet watched Enlightened, which I know many have, it is Mike White's HBO show from 2011 starring Laura Dern, and it was absolutely incredible, but only lasted two seasons, I believe. And I have to think that Mike White, with this new hit show, The White Lotus, which switches up casts every season, may want to leave his options open for casting Laura Dern in a future season as somebody who is not tied to characters from season two. That's my theory as to why she is not the woman in the pictures that Dominic is looking at on his phone. Do you have a take on this? Well, I like your take. That makes a lot of sense. But then I'm sort of like, well, but then why use her voice at all? Because it's like you, but then it's like, I guess, very Mike Whiteian to like rile up the fan base for us to be like, wait a minute, 
Is it gonna be? It's not. Like, we got a whole sort of, like, news cycle out of uh, a seemingly innocuous moment from the, sh- from the season, right? Like, this was just supposed to be, you know, a 45-second voice memo that left, you know, entire articles written about, was that Laura Dern on the phone? Not to say I think Mike did that intentionally, um, but that was a byproduct of it. But yeah, if, if, if she is going to appear, why use her at all is my argument. But what I like about the way you're thinking is that leaves a lot of room in the sort of like manifestation that I'm trying to make happen of Coolidge returning as a different character. It's sort of like if Laura Dern could potentially be play two different characters on the White Lotus you know, in, I mean, albeit in voice form as one. Okay, maybe there's opportunity for Jennifer Coolidge to appear in voice form in season three. You see where I'm going maybe. with this? Yeah. yeah. I <laughs> Not told. <laughs> I personally feel that Mike White never uh, had a guaranteed season three. It sounds to me in his interviews like he is surprised and delighted that it's been picked up for a third season. And so he may have just had access to Laura Dern and said, hey, I have this small part. Would you play it? Yes. And then, ooh, now like this has really blown up way more even than season one. It feels like I haven't seen the ratings, but now I might want to keep my options open. And it's lucky that we edit episode 10 last so that we can use whatever photos we like uh, after we know the reception that the show has gotten. Totally. I do think notably about these three characters, I'm really eager for us to talk about them here today because I feel like the Coolidge storyline has gotten dissected a ton, as has the storyline with Ethan and Harper and Cameron and Daphne. I feel like Albie's gotten dissection because of his proximity to Lucia, but I feel like this dynamic, the father, son, grandson, um, is particularly fascinating in sort of unpacking the story that Mike White was trying to tell vis-a-vis these three characters and where each of the three of them land um, from when we first see them to the end. I think that that parting shot of the three of them um, at the airport turning back and uh, cruising uh, that woman, I think that there was a big statement made in that moment about how, how despite the fact that they have such divergent views in many senses about uh, women and about, uh, you know, gender roles and, you know, Albie thinks gender is a construct. Despite all of that, they, when it sort of, when push comes to shove, um, they're all a lot more similar than I think, particularly Albie would want to believe. What did you sort of glean as like uh, Mike's intention with this storyline? Well, I thought that maybe there was something being said about the inability to change and that recognition that they have been there seven days. This has not been a life-changing trip for them. I think it progresses their relationship. It advances their relationship to one another. It evolves it in a new way. They have new experiences together. But I think back to you know last week's episode where Bert has this very sentimental moment where he sort of seems to be reflecting on the way that he has imagined his life vis-a-vis the way that he is sort of being confronted with uh, with his life as his fantasy of returning back to Sicily uh, has sort of crumbled around him. And he has that moment where he talks about, you know, uh, 
you hope for the embrace uh, of a woman um, and, you know, a, a life well lived or something like that. And and then we come back and it's immediately like, uh, uh, you know, Mia hugs him and he got aroused. It's like the same old birth, the same birth that walked into the White Lotus. And I really appreciate that because people don't change in seven days, right? I mean, like even... Ethan and Harper, I think, don't really change. They learn something new about themselves and they move forward carrying that newly discovered piece of them or like a, a new tool that they have or whatever. And we'll, and we'll get deeper into them. But I just think that it, it, I appreciate it because it's a little bit of a breath of fresh air when it comes to television that feels like we're wrapping up a season and we really like need to push these characters into a brand new direction uh, and and put all of this all of these things that they've learned about themselves they make them a new person where i think they've learned things about themselves but there's a stubbornness to change and i think bert is a great example of a stubbornness to change that that all of us have did you think that when he arrived at breakfast in this episode and mentioned the fact that he'd had the dream mm. did you believe that to mean that the concussion um, was rearing its head and he actually thought it was a dream. What, what do you think was going on there? No, it was a joke. Okay. I think Bert was joking. Okay. Which which was nice because it's sort of like, and, and maybe this is speaking to the ability of men to sort of sit with their emotions, but he, he had this moment at dinner that was very raw for him that after this day of experiences, uh, he, was ex- he was feeling something and then he goes to sleep, he wakes up, and he's the same old Bert. Really nothing has changed except that this dream wasn't realized. And when a dream isn't realized, you don't really like dwell on it forever. You move on with your life. And I think that's what he's doing. And he's and he's using humor to sort of mask or like cover up uh, the disappointment mm-hmm. or um, the, the whatever emotions he may be feeling about this trip coming to an end and the purpose of the trip for him not being successful. And he's going to move on with his life. You know, I was very curious what Dominic and Bert did to occupy their time during this trip because, you know, we get shots of them, we get the breakfasts, and we get the dinners. We have the one, you know, obviously that they went to the Godfather house and, you know, they tried to meet up with the family, but like, we didn't really get, they didn't seem like pool types. They didn't seem like beach types. Um, well, they did go to the beach that one day, uh, the day of the big gay party, right? They went, Albie, we, we're going to go sit over here. And oh, he was like, actually, I'm going right. to sit with Lucia. Mm, so they did go yeah. to the beach one day. Okay, fair enough. So I would have loved to explore the the character of Dominic a bit more. Mm. I did feel like of all of the resolves in this episode, his felt to me the least fulfilling because it almost was like that moment of, oh, it's the season finale. We have to give this some element of closure. And so he gets that phone call, but we don't really know what that phone call means. It seems as though it's meant to signify the blossoming of hope, the idea that like the door is open, whereas be- or perhaps you know a jar, um, whereas before it seemed entirely closed, which I understand. I also do think like to Dominic's credit, he has this sex addiction, 
we, I think it's like episode two, I think, when it's like he's sleeping with both Mia and Lucia, but like we never get anything of that from him again. Like once he sort of, you know, he has that moment, he vows to change in episode two, then they come around and he suddenly is like, you know, back in the thick of it. But then from there, Dominic's only on the upswing by way of like becoming the better person that I think he aspires to be. So it's interesting that like Albie in this episode is continuing to hold this over his head in such a way because to Dominic's credit, I found like Dominic was actively trying to be better and successfully so. And like you said, it's only been five days. That does not a changed man make, but at least it was clear that Dominic, both in intention and action, was wanting to turn things over. And I think a lot of it actually comes back to that scene of him walking at the beach and seeing that couple that sort of, to him, was... Um, you know, a vision of him of his past with his kids playing on the beach and the life that he either once had or dreamt he would have, I'm not so sure. I think there was a lot in that scene of Dominic really deciding in that moment. Um, you know, there's like this, you know, is he going to go toward the light or go towards the darkness? And I think in that moment, he chose the light. Hmm. What do you make of Dominic actually making the payment to Lucia? Strange. I, yeah. I guess, so the bank account of it all was the part I found confusing. I mean, the 50, 50K aside, or 50 euros, for, wait, 50,000 euros aside, wouldn't you want to get that money out in cash? You're interacting with a sex worker, and I'm not looking down on sex workers, but someone like Dominic does look down on sex workers, and especially considering he is hoping to renew his relationship with his wife, you really wouldn't want a paper trail on your credit card linking you to the sex worker that both you and your son slept with during your vacation. So outside of the fact that I just thought that outsized payment was strange, the fact that it was like the money's in your account, I was like, hmm, that's odd. Well, at this point he has the cover of being able to refer to Lucia not as a sex worker, but as Albie's new girlfriend. Right. But even then, it's just like, how do you explain? And maybe he has separate accounts with his wife. I mean, they're like separated to some degree. Right. So it's not even that he has to necessarily explain, but some, somebody's going to ask these questions. And so he's going to say, well, my son convinced me to give 50,000 euros to a girl he met three days before prior. I think the logistics were odd. But what I did like about it was I liked the conversation. I liked the conversation between Albie and Dominic about money and uh, earning money, valuing money, having like a real concept of what money means to them. And uh, I don't know necessarily what Mike White was trying to say with it, but I think it did reveal some things that you have kind of both of them we as an audience are able to look down on in that moment because mm -hmm. on one hand we can say, Albie, this is a crazy ask of your dad to give 50,000 euros, which is like a significant annual salary for anybody to a girl that you just met who you know is also a prostitute and like uh, other people owe her money as well, right? Also, you know that that money you, you're giving her is going to immediately go into the hands of someone else. Yes. So it's not even as though you're giving her 50K for a better life for her. You're helping her pay off a debt to a man that clearly from, if I was going off of what they've seen of him, could easily continue to shake them down, shake her down some more. I think I would have needed a little bit more 
clarity and assurance from them before making that payment. Um, but it, I, I did enjoy watching that interaction between Albie and uh, his father. And I think Albie was an interesting character because the internet, especially early on, assumed because he was so outspoken about his intention to be a good man, whatever a good man is, and and to not be like his father and his grandfather, and to say things um, like, you know, memes, like uh, gender is a construct. There was this pushback of like, he's so liberal that it's almost like he, he was pushing towards like incel. But the thing with Albie is it's like, we saw a backbone in him that built particularly in this episode in the way he maneuvered that conversation with his father. And what's interesting about like a character like Albie is I think that a lot of people want to look at these characters and like assign a label to them. For instance, like Portia, a lot of people are like, oh, she's so annoying. Um, And she certainly can be annoying, but there's like more to her. And I found that, uh, especially in where things left off with this episode, I wasn't sure how I ultimately felt about Albie. And in terms of the question of like whether or not Albie is a good person, um, I actually don't know. I think you could really make strong cases toward both. and also thinking through of like what his intention was ultimately in his relationship with Lucia. Um, in his mind, was it, I will pay off this 50K, she will be good to go, she will move to Los Angeles, and we will live happily ever after. But then it's like, he's a Stanford graduate, and he's so, and, and, and so does his, in his mind, it's like, you wanna believe it's like he's a little smarter than to think that this five day love affair was worth upending his entire life. But then again, maybe that's what love does to you. I don't know. I sort of was like, Albie remains a big mystery, I would say second only to Daphne in the sense of wondering like who they are and where their story would go from here. Yeah, the sense I get about Albie is that he is pretty deficient when it comes to understanding how relationships work and like having mature relationships he seems like somebody who's trying really hard and remember with Portia that uh, he he was always like very careful to make sure that she was consenting to everything and she had to tell him like look like you know I'm here you like you know, this isn't this is actually kind of a turn off what you're doing here and I wish you would just be like a little bit more forward with me um and I think he's like He's sort of like modeling his behavior based on what he understands is correct, either based on whatever his father doesn't do or whatever he learns from the media. And I think he's still figuring it out. Now, why Dominic would, uh, who, who I think understands this about Albie, would then, you know, acquiesce to his request mm-hmm. uh, is beyond me, but, uh, but, but he does. And then I did like that it led to this moment at the dinner when he said, look, I've transferred the money and, and, you know, this isn't why I did it, but would you, would you put in a word for me with your mom? And that Albie says, I already did. Uh, I thought was like a nice wrap up to that story. And I like the fact, and, and this is so much speaks to like the aspects of Mike White that I like so much that are sort of his more understated choices, which is like, in, in, in lesser hands, you would have gotten the reaction shot from Dominic to like help land that moment. But that's not what it was. You left that scene immediately after that and it sort of left you the audience to say, what do you make of that? Like, 
Was Albie in that moment, be, was that like a generous thing that Albie did? Or was it ultimately quite manipulative? Do we even believe Albie that he did that at all? I mean, Albie got what he wanted. Um, and I, I think just that level of mystery um, and just going out on the scene right then, I thought was just perfect. You never really get those like reaction shots. I think also too, it, it's the similarity with the character of Daphne in not knowing what she's thinking. I, I thought of it um, too during the scene when at the beginning of the episode, um, when Harper calls Ethan stupid, you're you're an idiot. Um, mm. I was like so calls curious. Cameron. I was like, Cameron an idiot. Excuse me, sorry, sorry, sorry. Calls, calls Cameron uh, an idiot. I was so curious to know how everyone else was reacting to that and we didn't get it, you know? It was just on Cameron's reaction and Cameron's reaction alone. And then when you finally do, this is a few beats later, have uh, Daphne in frame, her face is not indicating any reaction at mm -hmm. all to it to, to lead you anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, which I think is just one of those interesting things. There are just all these choices. Another one I'm thinking of is the car scene between Jack and Portia. All of a sudden, you get this shot of both of them from the back seat of the car. So there's a shot of uh, the camera is behind Portia facing uh, Jack, and then behind Jack facing Portia. And I'm just thinking, like, from the director perspective or the DP or whoever does this, like, why did they make that choice, right? Why not just, you know, get the shot where you see their faces? What what was trying to be conveyed there? And it was effective. Like, it definitely it framed them differently. It no doubt had an impact on how we received the scene. And I just like, I'm just fascinated to know more about Mike White's choices beyond just like the thematic or like the plot driven choices, but choices like that, choices like not giving us a reaction shot. I wonder how those conversations play out. Yeah, and I think that in the case of Albie, Bert, and Dominic at dinner here, I think it was, it was consistent with the way that he has edited the show with other characters, but I felt like in this case, it was a little bit of a comment on how men relate to one another and what is said and what isn't said. I mean, like amongst all of this, everything that is shared between Albie and Dominic is fact-based, right? It is not feeling-based. It's not emotion-based, but I mean, it's it's easy to see the emotion that's behind it, or in some cases, it's not easy to see. But the way I saw it was Albie put in the word with his mom, which I believe did happen because then, you know, she is open to receiving Dominic's phone call later that night. Um, I felt like what he was saying with that is like, OK, look, I, I see that you're trying with me i'm trying with you and like let's move this forward a little bit like we can advance this in in baby steps and i felt like that was him um, not just doing a thank you for considering the transfer of money to lucia but seeing how the breakdown of dominic's relationship with his mom albie's mom uh had affected dominic his dad right and i think he started to to care about that uh, in a significant way. And without actually saying that, he sort of like took actions to show that. Right. I also liked the way that the Albie storyline was wrapped up because speaking of sort of like those lack of like um, confirmation beats, if you will, when Albie wakes up and Lucia's gone, you kind of expect there to be a scene of him ruffling around the bed, getting up, realizing what happened and being hysterical about it. But you don't get that. You just get him waking up, and then the next thing we get is him at the airport with Portia approaching and him explaining the fact that 
she played him. Um, yeah. I, I just, again, that sort of withholding of the expected, I think, is one of the many ways that Mike is such a successful storyteller. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the couples because, I mean, the relationship between Ethan and Harper, I said it last week, has been like the driving force for me in this season. And I felt like the ending of this was so satisfying for me. There were so many beats that really put me on edge, excited me here in this episode. And uh, it's all around this issue of trust. Uh, it's not even loyalty, but it, it's like trust. I, and I said this last week that they have this confrontation. Ethan has this confrontation with Harper where he is finally at his breaking point. I feel like she's been playing mind games games with him and she has pushed him to the point where it's all he can see. I mean, we're seeing his visions of Cameron and Harper having sex in the bed next to him. And finally he has, he reaches a breaking point and he confronts her. And I felt like this was a really great fight to watch, just so realistic. And, uh, and, and he was accusing her of withholding information about what happened when Harper and Cameron came up to the room when the door was latched in the last episode. I felt like Aubrey Plaza's delivery of everything here was so, so, so incredible because it's really hard, I think. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an actor. But I think, I imagine it would be really hard to act, which is a lie, right? <laughs> to, to act is to lie. And then act like you're lying in a way that can leave the audience unsure as to whether you were lying or not. And I feel like a lot of people overplay that when they have to do it or underplay it. And it leads to unintended ambiguity. But I felt like the ambiguity that we were left with in this scene was exactly what they were aiming for. And I just felt like in this moment, Aubrey Plaza was Harper. Harper was a fully realized character with complex uh, and nuanced motivations. And I just thought that this was such, such a well-written and acted scene. I love that moment um, when she starts laughing. Uh, and not like not yeah. like laugh out loud, just like a little kind of giggle. And he calls her out on it. And rather than stop laughing as she is responding and trying to like get her composure together, she lets out a little laugh again, which is just one of those like micro 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 beats which is like sometimes when someone's coming at you with a lot of intensity you can't help but laugh because it's so strange right and and sometimes the emotion is not to um pull back but rather to just it's like all you can do is laugh i i love that i think this was an incredibly tense scene i could i couldn't help but think well what if she hadn't done anything right because it's like he clearly was at this point where he was not believing her. He made that clear. He got lucky in the sense of like, there was a something for him to find out. But I really do wonder what the character of Ethan would have done had there not, had he not have been, had his sense been off entirely, had she come up there to in fact get her book, or excuse me, her hat, he came up to get his book. If that was all there is, like what would Ethan done with all of that pent up rage? Yeah, what I really, really loved about the way that Aubrey Plaza played this was in the way that she was bringing up various sort of justifications for her actions. We could tell that she she did do something, 
right? I felt like we could tell she did something because of the way that that she was giving these these little tiny, like you call them micro gestures that were that were tells that she was lying. And so I felt like there was something there because the facts that were being presented didn't make sense, right? The latched door didn't make sense and she didn't have an explanation for it that made sense. Therefore, something had to have happened. And it was either that she was playing mind games with him or something happened with Cameron. And as this went on, it became clearer and clearer that something happened with Cameron. And I felt like because she was bringing up these sort of justifications for her actions in advance of coming clean, where she was talking about, oh, well, it's not like it's it's not like you found a condom on the couch like I did. Remember that? And then she does come clean in a way and, and talks about this kiss. And then she says, but but that's not the issue, right? She's getting it off of her and saying, that's not the issue. The issue is you're not attracted to me and you won't have sex with me. I just thought that that was all really, really interesting because it's so true to how couples can fight and... You're in this self-preservation mode where you're trying to calm the situation, but also take the heat off of you. It becomes like very primal. So you've got like both sides of your brain kind of working uh, at once. And the delivery is always clunky and not necessarily productive for anybody. So yeah, I, I just really, really loved this. And and I mean, like, I'm curious what you think about what happened between Harper and Cameron. Huh. I don't know. I'm not really big on speculating only because I'll never know. So it's sort of like, it's whatever I want to have happened. But I do think that one tell that I think leads me to believe that she was revealing all there is to know is, is her saying that she's not attracted to Cameron, which is something that I believe Mm. particularly at that breakfast earlier when she makes that blunt comment to him, calling him an idiot. I think that Harper is so disgusted by Cameron's brazen, um, just like dominant, um, incredibly male ego driven way with which he moves through the world that I, I, I don't think that she, I, I don't think it's that she thinks he's ugly, but do you ever know, like there are people, I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to this where it's like, they're objectively attractive people, but the way that they present themselves is so off putting that you just, it shuts it all down for you. Yeah. I mean, there are so many of those figures in Hollywood yeah. I can think of where I'm like, <laughs> if push came to shove, sure. Yes, obviously. But like, that's not who I'm running to. So, So I can definitely understand that it's like, yes, sure, she's happy to have a role in the sack with Cameron, but it's not as though she had eyes for Cameron the way that I think Cameron had eyes for her. And curiously, too, did Cameron even have eyes for for her? Was Cameron attracted to Harper or was he attracted to the idea of stealing someone once again from Ethan? And we don't really know. Um, So I sort of like that ambiguity. and, And speaking of ambiguity... I think the big question that will be asked by many of like the fans of this show in the, in the postmortems will be what happened between Ethan and Daphne. Um, did they sleep together? That's a question I'm much more interested in exploring. Mm. Um, so let me put it to you. Uh, mm. Do you think that they had a little tryst on that island? I don't. Is it an island? Yeah, I'm calling it Exile Island. <laughs> So you don't, you think they went for a little stroll? I think that they went for a stroll. They may have talked. 
I don't think that Ethan would have done it even given uh, the chance. It would strikes me as like very out of character. And I don't think that what Daphne told him would lead him to interpret that advice as I should sleep with this woman. And, and maybe we should talk about the conversation between Ethan and Daphne, because I think Oof. that that was uh, one of the standout scenes of not just this season of television. But. And it's funny because it's like we already got a standout scene from Megan Fahey several episodes yeah. ago that like if we got no other big Daphne moment, like that would have been enough. But then we got this one. And uh, yeah, let's let's talk about it. Yeah. And uh, I have a little nitpicky thing to talk about here because this is right after Ethan attacks Cameron in the water, which I thought was a great sequence. Dry and, shirt. And so... Yeah, the wet shirt. <laughs> Sorry. I know it's fair. It's really important. Is that what it was for you? Is it the dry shirt that you were? Is that the nitpick? Oh yeah, that is the nitpick. It's funny. Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. It's just I when I when when I watched that last night, I was like, Sean's gonna bring this up because you have such an eye for detail. Sorry. Yeah, I was very confused because <laughs> he went and they had this epic fight in the water. Uh, where they should, they could have just kissed and it would all be over and everyone would have been happy. Maybe they could have gone to Exile Island, but they didn't. They fought in the water. Okay, they got their like male rage out. Ethan is soaking wet. Next time we see him, he's walking down the beach, seemingly decompressing from the fight. Same shirt, dry as a bone. Right. And so that's when he sees Daphne and she invites him to come sit down. He kind of tells her like, I think something happened between Cameron and Harper. And you get this series of, as you called them, micro gestures. Like, I think like a, you could count like 75 mm-hmm. in this scene from mm-hmm. her that told potentially a hundred different internal monologues that she could have been having. And once again, this is that ambiguity that I think Mike White loves about what these characters are thinking, what's motivating them, how are they processing this information. And I think that many people could walk away with a different interpretation of what her face was saying in that moment. Right. So the viral tweet going around from my friend Spencer Outhouse is basically saying that in that moment, you know, she's putting the pieces together as they are being laid out, you know, uh, quite obviously, which is that, you know, she's in taking this information that is being presented to her by Ethan about her husband, when my interpretation of that was that her reaction is more about Harper. We have Mm. that detail from their trip to the Palazzo several episodes ago when she talks about the fact that she doesn't have many female friends. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, the reveal about the trainer was really a gesture of friendship um, from Daphne to basically invite her into a part of Daphne's world that people don't know about, to give her a sense of like uh, the underbelly of Daphne, if you will. And that's something that is I could easily be judged, but Daphne felt comfortable enough with Harper to give her this information, I think also in the hope of saying, I used to be like you, Harper, and you can be more like me. Like there's a there's a training guide. I am your sensei, and I'm inviting you in. You've earned the right to be 
this person that I am the fully formed version of. And so I think the betrayal for her is not that Cameron's having yet another dalliance. She knows that goes on and she gets her rocks off too. I think it's the idea that Harper, this person who is new to her and has earned her trust, has betrayed her. And I leave and I think the the Cameron of it all is sort of irrelevant really. I think it's all about the Harper of it all. I completely 100% agree because in last week's episode, and I think I talked about this, that I think Harper misinterpreted Daphne's advice when she said, you know, you need to do whatever you need to do to make yourself feel good about a particular situation. And like I said last week, I think Harper interpreted that as I need to make Ethan feel as shitty as I feel instead of I need to make myself feel good. And so that led to like a real breakdown of Ethan and Harper's relationship momentarily here. And so I think Daphne's processing the fact that like, I not only what you're saying, like I thought I had this connection with Harper and now she's gone and done this. I think it's also like sense of like failure or disappointment that Harper has like so badly bungled the uh, the implementation of the advice that she had given her um so i think there's like sadness for herself potentially i think like maybe momentarily sadness for harper sadness for ethan i don't think she gives a shit about cameron to be honest i mean like i think i think she loves him in in whatever in the relationship they have but i don't think she's thinking about him in that moment and there's just like then a hundred different things where it's like I, i think also daphne is very adept at putting on a front, um, hiding her emotions. And I do think you see her reset in this moment. Like you do see her face fall for a second. She licks her lips. She bites her bottom lip. She looks off. She winces. She swallows. She turns back. Like every, every single uh, uh, motion she makes, I think is, is the next cog in the wheel turning. And that's when she tells Ethan that, you know, it's important to have like a little bit of mystery in your relationship and mystery can be sexy. We don't have to know everything about each other or everything that we're thinking or doing. And, you know, she says that she has that great line where she says, you know, there's things I don't even know about myself. I surprise myself all the time, which I loved that so much. And then she imparts upon Ethan the same advice she imparted upon Harper, which was, You just do whatever it is you have to do to make yourself not feel like a victim in life. Which is such incredible advice. Like it, it, it's like she really is. She has guru tendencies. You know, this seemingly very basic person has a very evolved mindset in so many senses. Now them going off to exile Island, as we're calling it, even if they didn't fuck, it was a very bizarre sequence. We got the yes. slow-mo, yeah. they're not walking together. It was very clearly like that Mike Whiteian vibe that was put over that scene. So if they didn't fuck, and I, I'm with you, I don't think that they fucked, there was very much a purposeful uh, ambiguity around whatever was happening there and, and what that connection being made was, not only with Daphne's performance, but... Will Sharp. Again, I don't think the men's performances are getting talked about a ton because they're getting dominated by these incredible female performances. And this is not even mentioning Simona Tabasco, Beatrice Grazzo, uh, and uh, 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 Sabrina Impacciatore. Like, there's 
those three as well. So the men's performances, which I think are a little bit more grounded, kind of, I think, fall out of the conversation. But Will Sharp uh, in this back and forth uh, was incredible. Also, not knowing what he was going through. Was he wanting to fuck her in that moment? Or what was he interpreting of her? When he goes and knocks on her door earlier, when he's first looking for Cameron, and he's like, where the fuck is he? You expect Daphne to be like, whoa, like you're coming. But like Daphne has no reaction to it. She's just like, I think he's down by the beach. She is such a surprising character and actress. And like, you just don't know what's going on in her head at any given moment. It's really compelling. I did want to ask you, do you think there's the scene early on in the episode when she's on the FaceTime with the kids and we have that, you know, mysterious shot of Cameron looking in the mirror. Do you think that that moment was meant to signal Cameron's awareness that they're not, in fact, his kids? I think that's a way to read it. I don't know that that's the way I read it. I think it's the way I read it the second viewing. It's not the way I read it on the first viewing, and I don't know that there's a right answer here. I sort of thought, like, if anything, it's just, like, a typical man that, like, does it's not that involved with the, with the kids. Like, I mean, a lot of things, he loves his kids. I think he loves his wife. But he was just like, I'm having a me moment right now. And, like, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to mm-hmm. it. I, I didn't think it was, like, that deep. But I, I, could, I could see that reading of it. But that feels a little heavy-handed to me. Mm-hmm. In a show that's not heavy-handed. If I were to like dole out notes uh, with regard to, to this foursome, I am with you. I like where we landed with the couples. I feel like I wanted one more Harper scene. You know, obviously we end with them finally fucking, the statue breaks, we get that incredible shot of Will Sharp's ass, which goes in the canon mm-hmm. of great nude moments of this episode. About Emmys. Yeah. Also, we should mention uh, Sabrina Impacciatore's ass in this episode was also something to marvel at. Um, So we get that culmination. They finally have sex. I kind of just was craving like one more postmortem with the two of Mm -hmm. them or like just one more Harper beat. But I also think there's power in withholding. So I understand. But it's just like I had a hard time knowing that this was the end of my time with Harper because I feel like Daphne got that really big scene to go out on and Harper's final scene was sort of her fucking. I just I just want okay, more Harper. But, but, but I'll say that th- there were two really, really incredible moments in the scenes that you, you just mentioned. Uh, one, well, actually, I don't know if you mentioned it, the dinner scene, right, where they're sitting down to dinner uh, on their own and Cameron and Daphne realize that, they're already at dinner, and so they invite themselves to their table. And first of all, Aubrey Plaza looks incredible Incredible. in that scene. Like, stunning. The way it moves her hip up on her body. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. And then she has that single tear that falls down her cheek that she, like, deftly wipes away before Daphne and Cameron can see it. And I just thought that was, like, such a good moment for the character. And then, of course, when they go back and fuck... That moment where the Testa de Moro had crashes to the ground, I thought was so... I'm getting chills saying this right now. Like, I thought it was so powerful because that image has been haunting this couple since they moved into their room. And the way that I have thought somebody was going to smash that thing over somebody else's head and that it gets knocked over in this, like, coming back together and finally 
finally having sex for the first time on this trip on their last night in Sicily and this way that they've found a new relationship hack that they can access, which they have learned from their dumb friends. And their relationship is now sort of like better than ever, potentially. And that, you know, we are basically casting off this potential curse that we had and it comes smashing down to the ground i thought was so 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 powerful like i loved that shot and i love how it lingered on the shots of the broken head on the floor as ethan's going down on harper it was perfect and a plus no notes i love the choice of having him going down on her i thought that was really genius as well do you want to know what that scene was giving me tell me I was getting Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, season three, episode 21, graduation day, when Buffy and Angel, uh, Angel uh, needs, he, he's been wounded by Faith and he needs the blood of a Slayer. And so he bites Buffy and there's that like shot where it's in slow-mo and all of a sudden he's on top of her and the both of them fall to the ground at the same time. It had that same energy to me of like this like mm. carnal desire and the idea of like, the sex being so um, hot and like stimulating that like the room is affected by it. Like the room has to take note of this and like adjust as a result because Mm. these two interlocking bodies are just, are too much for the gravity of this room to hold down. I I thought that like it really conveyed that so effectively. Yeah. Do you see any potential for either of these couples to continue on in a potential White Lotus 3? I may be jumping ahead here, but so we're think, talking about them. Yeah, this is interesting. I think one of the things to consider is how much of the season is written already. You know, um, the show was shot months and months ago. However, we learned via Mike White's interview with Katie Couric that it was being edited up until weeks ago. So Mike has like been in the thick of it up until recently. So that would give reason to believe season three is not yet written. And if it's not written, I do think they there would be an awareness around, okay, if we can't continue on with the fan favorite from the first season, let's continue on with the fan favorite from season two. Like that seems like an obvious choice. And I feel like there's a big opportunity to explore like the girl boss universe of Daphne. Um, I definitely think that there's that's a possibility. And I also think it's another way to like add continuity to like, oh, each season one person or someone dies and each season there's a character that comes in um, from the previous universe. Um, I'm hopeful of that. I, I, I am curious. I mean, I think fans would love that. And I know Mike, I do think is a, a creator that is aware of fan service and recognizes the value in it. So why not? I feel like if this is... But then it's also like, I, I don't want to not see Harper again. But I also don't see a world in which Harper and Daphne, I don't think we can have them both back. No, no, I don't think so. See, I see if this was the case, I see Harper carrying on more than I see Daphne carrying on. Because although, yes, there's a, such a claim for Megan Fahey and Daphne as a character, I think that Daphne is such a well-developed person that I don't see a trajectory for Mm -hmm. her that sort of like is required to evolve her character. Where Harper's just tapped into something new about herself, she is, unlike, say, Albie, Dominic, and Bert, leaving a new person. And there may be 
much further for her to go. There may be further twists and turns down this road for her that I think she was came into this season. And, and if we put this in the context of the story, she came to the White Lotus like seven days ago, one person, and she is leaving a different person. And I think that that's really interesting. And somebody who's that type of character, I think, is more likely to evolve further down the road. Yeah. Where Daphne came in one person and left the same person. Mm-hmm. Daphne has always had all the answers, which is so interesting because, you know, I mean, it's just this total role reversal where, you know, Harper was the, we're, we're led to believe Harper is the smart one. On paper, Harper is the smarter of the two. And yet Daphne was so much more potentially like emotionally evol- evolved as a person or was able to tap into things uh, in her spirit that Harper hadn't ever contemplated you know digging into herself in that way and i really loved that role reversal and and how sort of daphne and cameron were able to teach ethan and harper something about their relationship to make it a better and stronger relationship Mm. which is so profound before we wrap it with the couple i do want to like give a shout out to theo james and this performance as cameron it's the kind of performance that doesn't get acclaim for several reasons. I think he's sort of like the quote unquote bad guy of the season and the character he plays is so unlikable that it's easy to just disregard the actor playing him. But I really think Cameron, excuse me, Theo James as Cameron gave a lot to, uh, you know, adding some texture to Cameron and some, I always questioned throughout this season how intelligent Cameron was. It's something I wasn't quite sure of. And there were just a lot of like small beats of Cameron that I really enjoyed. Cause we saw him, you know, go ballistic on the phone at that one episode, we saw the rage, but then I think about when he and Daphne were out shopping and he emerges from the dressing room and he's like kind of like dancing. And I just feel like we, I can understand Daphne's love for Cameron, despite the fact that I think he's an asshole. And I think that they did a good job of not both Theo and Mike's writing and directing of not making the character of camera as, as expected. And because Daphne is so not what you expect, I like the fact that they sort of like tempered it with Cameron. He ultimately is what you expect to a degree, but there's some other shades to him that I think made him a a pretty interesting character. What did you make of that conversation about (laughs) that Harper called him an idiot for where, you know, he was justifying throwing yogurt at your assistant and, uh, and this comment that he made that, you know, it's almost like you, you can't even get successful anymore because then someone will be upset that you're successful because it's the same Cameron we saw in episode one where he was more so tiptoeing around this other couple talking about like how, oh, we've got all these bogus claims, these bogus HR claims at work. And and here Harper is a lawyer who deals with those kinds of claims. And now he's just sort of like letting it all out to be like, this is ridiculous, sort of like lightly commenting on cancel culture and this sort of thing. And uh, I, I just thought it was like a really interesting way to show Once again, like just reinforcing the point that Cameron and Daphne, you know, they haven't changed and they don't feel they need to change. Do they need to change? Well, I think that's a bigger question. I think there's areas in which they could benefit from some change. But it's like we've really actually seen the evolution in, you know, their friends, Harper and Ethan. Well, and not for nothing, it's like. I think Cameron and Daphne are both very happy in life, uh, both as a couple and independently. And there is something to be said, going back to Daphne's quote about like, you know, I'm not going to be a victim. I think there's something to be said about people that 
live happy lives. And I'm not saying that they're always good people. That's a different moral question. But I mean, there's something I I think it's what Mike was presenting was this idea of like bad people can have it all sometimes or, or seemingly have it all. And what do we make of that? Because you kind of want like, you want those kind of people, the tendency to, is to have them get their comeuppance. And it's mm -hmm. like, but what happens when they get a happily ever after? Yeah. Okay, let's talk Tanya. Maybe Portia mixed in here. There's a lot to dig into here because uh, Tanya, last we left her, was at the Coke-fueled party uh, in the Palazzo, and she's waking up the new diva of Palermo, and she wakes up immediately to some sinister sort of vibes with uh, the gays whispering over breakfast, right? And she joins the breakfast, and they're they're talking about, you know, they want to give her the perfect send-off. And I felt like I felt like there were some real A plus deliveries from Jennifer Coolidge in this episode. Even just these small moments where, you know, they say they say they want to give her the send-off that she deserves. And then she goes, Oh, send-off. Uh, like it's just classic Coolidge and it was funny and it was like much needed because just going into this episode, there was just, I was tense. I don't know if anybody else was. I think everybody else was. Everyone but like was the tense. level of anxiety and tension really needed to be broken by some of these Coolidge moments. Like you had this one um, and you had right when she was, she was saying goodbye to Matteo at the Palazzo who was staying behind and she was talking about how he was crying. I mean, you had the incredible moment on the boat where she was doing the walk and run and walk and run to try not to seem suspicious. Um, but it was in the most obvious way. So I felt like what a way for Jennifer Coolidge to go out on the White Lotus with, uh, this very, very complex and like bumpy road, um, that she got to play in Tanya here. Yeah, I, I'm curious about, uh, well, first of all, I love that whole mini, mini, mini arc with Mateo, which was basically like, we're made to understand that like, he was not on board with this plan. He was the one voice of dissent. And as a result, he was like, I will not get on that boat and witness this death. And like, he had this clear love for Tanya. I feel like he was like the proxy of like the us, the viewers being like, you know, he's going to hang back and, and say a tearful goodbye. I, I well, really... And yet he's he's hanging back at the palazzo that her death is going to fund. Yeah, no, he is a complicated, he's a complicated yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I really definitely enjoyed that. And I like this idea of like uh, the complexity of Tanya is such where she can sort of be tempered by just, uh, you know, playing into her ego. So th despite the fact that you think she's going to wake up and, you know, between seeing the fucking and now this wild night and the photo of Greg and you're going to think it's all coming together. And it kind of is. But they're able to just give her one compliment and her mind just sort of is able to reroute. And she is suddenly mm -hmm. no longer thinking about, you know, on the course of figuring out this mystery. I thought that was like incredibly Tanya. And I like that tension building up of like you just you want her to get out of there and fast, but I like the fact that like, we saw in episode five, Quentin becomes super sinister during that chat, you know, when they got back and about the I die for beauty, but I like the fact that they sort of eased up on that and Quentin didn't become as like Disney villain menacing in these episodes. Um, there are small details too, where like when she mentions the fact that she wants more white wine, rather than them trying to like move things along, they're like, no, 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 have more white wine. Like we're, we can go as long as you want. Like they weren't 
rushing into it, which led to the that sort of like, okay, is Tanya justified in her beliefs? Um, or is she crazy? Or is she crazy and justified in her beliefs, which as it turns out was the case. Yeah. And she had this great moment, I thought, at the breakfast, where she was talking about how, well, Portia's not here, and, and she must have run off with Jack, and they're, they're just trying to get her mind off of Portia, because, of course, it's a key element of their plan that she is not around. And she says this thing about how I've always had bad luck with assistants. They they become my boss. They start bossing me around and then they start stealing my medication and then they disappear. It's just how it goes with me. Where it's like if she was given 25 more seconds to reflect on that, she might turn that around and like have some self-reflection. And yet they, they sort of move her on very quickly from thinking mm-hmm. about Portia in the same way that he moves her on from thinking about right. Greg when looking at the photo. And I just feel like there's so often with Tanya that it's like, if she just had the time to take just a couple more beats, I think she'd be okay. Yeah, yeah. What did you make of the fact that, you know, as I pointed out and many did online, there was the camera recording her having sex in that last episode, which didn't really amount to anything. My thought process was that like, by this point, they're good to go. They have, you know, hard evidence. And there's this clause in the prenup and they can get the money now. And yet, as we learn, no, they're going to have to go full DEFCON. Oh, actually, excuse me. I don't want to say that. They're going to have to kill her. Um, and so I was surprised like that there was no no ramification to that whatsoever. It wasn't mentioned at all. Um, and also I was curious, like, so this guy, Niccolo, I'm surprised that he needed to be like brought, like they had this whole thing planned out. It's like, why didn't he spend the night at the Palazzo, get on the boat with them, good to go. Like, why was there this arrangement made? Why did they wait to get so close to back to Palermo? I was confused about the logistics of things. Hmm. And then what, what? And then also, like, and again, we'll never know. But like, what was their plan? Because they had the ropes and the gun, uh, which you don't need both, um, or I wouldn't <laughs> think you would need both. And it's like, well, once, maybe the gun is backup. They probably don't want to be firing shots. Yeah, no, fair. Okay, but like, what's their plan? Because it's like people know where Tanya is. Um, mm-hmm. They know they're with them. Like, what? I, I and again, like, we'll never know. But like, what was their end goal here? In this in this very brilliantly thought out, elaborate plan to take her out. Well, but who knows where Tanya is? Well, in theory, Portia knows where Tanya is. And yeah, you have which to was imagine the hiccup in their plan. Right, but you have to imagine she tells the hotel that she's not gonna be staying there for a few I don't know. Well, was Portia meant to get back to the hotel or was Jack meant to kill her? And you think he just he let her go? I think he let her go. That's interesting. I I vibe with that. I just feel like they didn't connect at all as human beings enough to think that he would like have that goodwill for her. Like you would think I mean, they would we need- saw him have that goodwill. So my theory is that he was meant to kill her. I think he said, get out of the car. If I were you, I wouldn't be going back to the hotel. Just go to the airport, go home, and it's done. Because if, if he was meant to bring her back to the hotel, then she tells the hotel and calls the police, right? Mm-hmm. Which she should have done the second she got her phone back, by the way. She should have run the second she got the phone. The fact that she just was like, I'm just going to step over D- here. Before, but the second she got the phone, forget it. Get out of the car, Portia. The second that you he, you get into the car. Like, she never should have gotten in the car in the first place. 
And the second he starts acting all sinister in the car, when she confronts him about being an uncle fucker, get out of the car. Get out, out of, of the, the car. car. I don't Run. care if you can't pay for a cab. Let the cab company call the cops on you. But also, you. like, doesn't she have, like, the company card? Like, I, I would think she would be, like, good to go. I don't know. Portia was, uh, there was a lot of confusing choices made by Portia in this episode. None more confusing than her outfit at the airport. But... Okay, yes, but... <laughs> There is like this whole universe of like think pieces around the fashions of Portia, which for one, ignore the fashions of Mia, which I think are equally worth talking about. Like we just don't even dive into Mia's fashions, but also like, I think that, I don't think Portia's costumes deserve the amount of attention they're getting. I think that that attention is better spent on talking about Daphne and Harper's costumes in the positive. I just feel like we've like put a lot of like, our creative efforts, not you and I, but like the internet at large into like dissecting her very millennial fashions or wait, are they, would it be very Gen X, Gen Z fashions? Gen Z. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. A costume designer did their job well. Um, I agree that they're not like high fashion couture. Um, and I agree that they're like not good outfits, but I'm just surprised that like there's been so much space devoted to like hating Portia's outfits. Uh, like I don't, hate Portia's outfit. You love to hate I them? think that the outfit at the airport was hilarious. Yeah. Just in terms of like what it looked like. The shot of her walking up to Albie from behind where you really get like the full view of the outfit. And it's like the hat is whatever. Like that hat is like secondary mm-hmm. or tertiary almost. It It doesn't even matter. It's like the shoes paired with the skirt, paired with the shirt, paired with the backpack mm-hmm. that hangs down. I just thought it was a really funny outfit. Mm-hmm. Like it was funny. It was like, a, it's a great outfit. Portia's wardrobe is almost one of the most interesting things about her. And so that's important. I, I think it's worth talking about. Yeah. And speaking of which, I think like for me, the one performance that like didn't quite jive for me was Portia and Haley Lou Richardson's performance. It's not that it wasn't good at all. It's more that, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about there just being so many incredible, like screaming Emmy nomination immediately performances, even in smaller ways. Like I just think F. Murray Abraham's performance as Burt was incredible. Um, that this performance I just don't think fit in amongst this cast of all of whom I think were just so perfectly cast. Whereas I kept watching this part thinking there's a number of actors I could insert or see as Portia. Whereas like imagine anyone else as Tanya. Like it's just, it's criminal to even do the thought exercise. Whereas like with Portia for me, it's like, okay, I could see her, I could see her, I could see her. Um, And I also think the character it had the most obvious arc in the sense of like what we were meant to feel about her, especially with where it landed. Um, because it was very much that Dorothy and Oz kind of story, which is that like, you know, I don't have, I don't have to review what that story is, but yeah, I, I, I think that that to me was like the most linear and obvious from the outset. Yeah. Yeah. What if I like went I think through that- and was like, let me tell you the story of the wizard of Oz right here. <laughs> I think that, like, Portia played the role she needed to play. Yeah. Like, we don't have to have, I think, if we're we're comparing sort of, like, the performances, I think to have the Harpers and the Daphnes and the Tanyas, 
I don't think that everybody needs to be on that level. I think it's actually in some ways important that not everybody is on that level. That's true. Because then you start getting like a knives out situation mm. where like, and no offense to knives out, but it's like, so sometimes these ensemble casts, they can become a little too heavy and there's too many things, people doing too many different things. So I think you need the, the Porsches and the Jacks for that matter. I would put him in this category as well, which is like, it was good enough. And, uh, and, and the character served their purpose, but okay. Back to Tanya. Should we go, uh, to Tanya on the yacht? Because no, I was just going to say, yeah, if I, I, maybe I'll post one at some point, but like these facial expressions on Coolidge's face on the yacht prior, before things pop off, when there's that ominous hours where she knows she's stuck on this boat. There is such a range of emotions that play on her face. I actually did several screen grabs and opened them and was just comparing them because there's like, there's dread at one point. There, It's like you, you see her realizing her fate, but like at first it's like, oh, I'm stuck on this boat for three more hours. Then it's like, oh, I'm stuck on this boat and these guys might not have the best of intentions. And then it's, I'm stuck on this boat and these intentions might be to kill me. And then it's, I'm stuck on this mm-hmm. boat, they might want to kill me and I might not have a way out. Like you just see it keep devolving and she plays and, it Until it becomes, I'm stuck on this boat and I have to kill these people to get out. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's really quite something. It's scary as a viewer because... It's all been leading up to this so well. And then Mike does that genius thing where it's like he puts Palermo in sight, right? Or excuse me, Terramina. Terramina. Yeah. It's in sight where it's like, um, it reminded me of Helen Shiver's death in I Know What You Did Last Summer, which I've always really loved. Have you seen I Know What You Did Last Summer? Yeah. So she gets out of the building. She falls out. She's in the alleyway. And you look out and you see the marching band going down the street and she's like feet away. And you're like, oh my God, she made it. I think it's like a nine minute scene that leads up to that. And you're like, oh, she's finally free. And then he jumps out of nowhere and gets her. I, it was very similar to that for me where it's like, you just, if only she could just, it's right there. Just, you know, get over there, Tanya. But the other part of was was like, how was that going to happen? It's like, Tanya just does not have it in her. So it became a matter of like, I was convinced I, I was convinced she was going to die at that point, but not obviously in the way that things played out. And I just loved the way that she was able to perform like a masterclass of drama, thriller, horror, and comedy in the course of just these yacht scenes, which was incredible. And I loved the moment, speaking of comedy, where she runs to the top and talks to the captain oh with the God. knitted hat and first confirms that he does not speak English. Okay. We're both on the same page. He doesn't speak English. And then she explains the most complicated murder plot to him in the world. And what she gets out of it is that he is also gay. And so she's got no allies on this boat. Tommaso, by the way, I, we had forgotten his name. I mentioned it earlier Tommaso. and forgot it. Tommaso, a real breakout. Uh, but yeah, totally agree with you. And what's incredible too is I think sometimes people think that 
Coolidge is just being herself and therefore they don't give her the credit as a comedic actress. And it's like, this is not Coolidge. Coolidge is not Tanya. Like she is very aware of the calibrations of this scene. And it's like, deserves the, the same credit that we're bestowing on Megan and Aubrey. Um, it, it, it really is something. And I, and I like how much of how much we got, you know, we got those hours where things were looming, but even just this whole sequence of events was like between talking to Tommaso, Tommaso, whatever. And then her, that shot of her at the top of the boat when I'm sorry, I forget his name once again. Uh, the guy that she's Niccolo. left with Nicolo. Sorry. As soon as he arrives, you have that shot of her watching and her yes. knowing what's happening. And, and, and that half-hearted wave that uh, she gives him. Uh, yeah. It's just like, it's really quite something. And then what was interesting about how things played out when she finally gets up and she grabs the bag was that you're still not sure what's meant to be going on because it's not as though they break into the room right away. They're kind of rather calm. It's Tanya who's losing it. And again, you, the viewer in that moment, are not sure if her instincts are correct, despite the fact that like everything is leading us to believe that. And then we have the reveal of the rope. Because the thing is, we knew the gun was in there because we'd seen it previously. But I think the rope really cemented the fact that she's not crazy. But even Quentin outside the room is sort of just like, that's that's not the bathroom that you're in. And, and you, you just don't know. Well, because he has established a pattern where he can talk her out of things, right? right? He can. Right. It's just she's one compliment away from uh, being, you know, taken down a different road. And so I felt like if he could have gotten into that room before she got to the weapon, that you know maybe he could have. I don't. I don't think he could have, but I think he thinks he could have because she knew more than than they realized that she knew, right? Um, so. Yeah, that whole scene, though, was just, like, so powerful. I mean, I already talked about this at the top of the episode, but it was just so powerful, that scene in the uh, in the bedroom, because it was, it was so claustrophobic on that boat. Those hallways are so narrow. The room is small. Um, she's got people pounding at the door for her. And then, and then, like I said, the way that Mike shoots this, just, like, close in on her face uh, as, as this rampage is going on. And then she has a Coolidge moment where she kills almost everybody and when quentin turns over her question is is greg having an affair that's the thing she wants to know as blood's like pulling out of his mouth yeah (laughs) it's like tanya like come on here like we've got bigger fish to fry in this moment now should we talk about the death because the way it plays out uh (laughs) was so frustrating to watch and yet so tanya because I felt like there was 10 other ways she could have gotten down there that would have resulted in no bodily injury to herself. Mm -hmm. She could have slid down the back of the boat. She could have jumped straight into the water and scrambled onto the boat. But her idea is to jump from the yacht to the boat in her heels and land on the floor of the boat. God bless. Is it the most Tanya thing ever? I was going to say, it's like with any other character, you'd be like, because I saw someone online made a list of like all the things that Tanya should have done 
to successfully have made her way onto the boat. And I'm like, you are misreading this entirely. It's like, <laughs> Tanya doesn't have a list, right? It's like, Tanya's gonna do what Tanya's gonna do. So this makes absolute and total sense. Did you have any inclination it was coming? In what sense? Well, did you reach a point where you thought, I, I, I think, it's hard to remember exactly, but I think right before it happened, I knew where this was going. I was holding out hope that she wasn't going to die in that moment. But I think what gave it away for me was the lack of any background music. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. This was really interesting in the scene that, you know, she starts shooting and a show that relies so heavily on ominous music playing in the background had none. Yeah. And so it gave this scene such gravity that there was only one outcome that I was hoping it wasn't going to happen. And then the way that she falls and the way that her, I think it's her back and not her head, slams against the metal railing of the boat, that sound that it makes, and she slides into the water. I screamed (laughs) and covered my mouth for the next, like, three minutes. So it's like, it felt inevitable, but I didn't want it to happen, and then it did happen and I couldn't believe it happened and yet it was like such an epic way for her to go out in a Tanya way and then that underwater shot of her and that underwater shot like I don't mean to pull the I know Jennifer Coolidge card but I will mention it briefly here because it's relevant to say I know Jennifer Coolidge and I know that that is a shot that she would not have wanted in the show I think, Sean, you know Jennifer Coolidge a little bit, and you too, I think, could corroborate I this information. I can, I can, I can confirm. <laughs> I, I can confirm, yeah. and I will not deny. I've never signed an NDA. I can confirm. Okay, so <laughs> that said, I really appreciate Jennifer allowing this shot to be included. It is so haunting. I mentioned it earlier as being one of the two shots that I think will stay with me from this episode, but I love that at first that wide shot, very Little Mermaid-esque of her sort of at the top left of the frame. And then we just get that prolonged close-up of this dead body, of this character that we've known the longest in this universe, um, who is by far the most popular character on the show. And thinking about it on a meta level of like what this character has done for the actor playing them. Um, It's a big moment. I mean, it's a moment that's shocking for all the obvious reasons, but then also just there's a sadness to seeing her go, knowing it's the end of the line for her, and then having it, again, without the music and tight on her face for so long. And... And it's funny, too, I was thinking because, you know, we have the Peppa Pig imagery from early on in the season. It's so pink. And this is so blue. And I just couldn't help but think about the contrast from the color perspective. Blue is just not a color I associate with Tanya whatsoever. Um, and just thinking about all those, the, the, how big of a role water has played throughout this season, you know, whether it be them arriving by boat in the very first episode, the continuous crashing waves, thinking about the fight between Cameron and Ethan in the water, and, you know, and then obviously this body. Uh, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm mourning the loss of Jennifer Coolidge on this show. Yeah, I did feel like going into this episode, I was already mourning 
the loss of the White Lotus season two, which mm-hmm. at only seven episodes is a very short season of television. And, you know, we talked about what an event it was. And so I felt like a lot of people were mourning the loss of these characters from their screens, no matter who was going to die on those screens. And so for this to be the character that brought everybody to the White Lotus season two, and you know the trajectory that she's been on and the tension that has been escalating and escalating in the past few episodes around the plot to potentially kill her uh it it felt like it had a lot of weight and you're thinking not just about the character of tanya but also about the actress jennifer coolidge and the renaissance that she's experienced and you were thinking about what everybody else was going to think about this you were mm-hmm. thinking about like the white lotus hive mind and i mean i think you said last week mike white would not kill jennifer coolidge because people would be mad and did you see and they were mad yeah. but they were upset i think the overwhelming sentiment i've seen is they were upset yeah and I saw a lot of these tweets being like, you know, we need to like f- find Mike White and like he will be dealt with. And it's just so funny because it's like your love of her right now is most likely born out of Mike White's love for her. Um, we have Mike White to thank for this moment, despite the fact that it is bittersweet for sure. But, you know, as Adina Menzel once sang, better to have loved than to never loved at all. Better to have loved than never to have loved at all. Something like that. It's not the best song. Um, yeah, I'm going to miss her. I'm going to miss Tanya. Um, and I do want us to uh, circle over before we close out to talk about Mia and Valentina and Lucia. Yes. Um, because there's a detail that I really, really liked about how this all played out, which I think was very intentional. Because... We had witnessed uh, Valentina really go through it. Um, you know, last week we learned about, you know, her, her you know, intended lover uh, not sharing those feelings. But even thinking about, you know, early on watching her getting that coffee at the, uh, esp- getting the espresso early on in the season uh, and her interaction with the man in the shop and then thinking about her feeding the cats on her lunch break. Um, there was just a despondency about Valentina as a character. So... I was expecting from this episode that it was all going to come crashing down and that, you know, she was going to get her heart broken. And I thought how brilliant that Mia is in a sense rejecting her. She's saying like, I'm not the one for you. You know, I'm not interested in women the way that you're interested in women, you know, but there's a hopefulness about it where like you get the impression, I think very um, purposefully that Mia is not using Valentina the way that that she the way it might have seemed. The, in the same way that Lucia is using Albie, this is different. I think there's the gen, the genuine intention to help Valentina on a journey that Mia is aware that she brought forth for her, and I think there's an appreciation from Valentina about that. And I found that such a lovely beat to hit. And it made that final moment with Mia and Lucia a lot more gratifying because although I think the fandom has really taken to Lucia and like we've wanted to see her win, I think Mia needed this redemptive moment because I think people have sort of been like unsure about Mia because she's done some pretty unsavory things. And I just thought this was so redemptive. Yeah. I agree. And I really loved being surprised by Valentina in these moments because we saw how she reacted when Isabella sort of rebuffed her advances. And 
yet when Mia sort of did the same, but in kind of like, and just in in a different circumstance, and 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 Valentina having had her first sexual experience with a woman, I believe, um, that she's she is like a new woman because of it, and you know the things that would have pissed her off before, you know, she welcomes Rocco back instead of like chastising him for rubbing Isabella's back, and then you know despite the fact that Mia basically comes out to her as as not a lesbian um you still see her at the dinner scene hours later uh you know admiring mia's performance at the piano and clapping along for her so i really really love where they landed these two characters and i felt like going all the way back to the comparison i made last week between the white lotus and the david versus goliath survivor theme how great that it feels like a David won this season. It feels like three Davids won this season with Valentina, Mia, and Lucia all finding their own versions of a happy ending. Yes, and there's the scene when Giuseppe comes back to to the hotel where you think it's all going to come crumbling down because you think that, not you, Sean, but just it, it's made to seem, I think, that uh, when push comes to shove, Valentina will have to choose Giuseppe because it's just, it's the institutional choice, right? It's like mm-hmm. the the thing that she knows. And to have her have that backbone that emerged to say, not only is she she firm in this decision, but she understands that this happiness that's brought forth can permeate into her professional life. And I think like that journey for Valentina, it's, it's, it's I, there's a the meme going around of like, wow, finally a lesbian with like a happy ending in, in, in you know media. And like not for nothing, it's true. Like Valentina really has this incredibly hopeful arc to end on and whereas like it's very obvious in the case of Mia and Lucia because where we leave them we don't get that same shot of Valentina and yet I think Valentina is by far the most changed character coming out of of these seven days and you know talking about characters we would want to continue on with I would be curious about like Valentina being restaffed at another White Lotus. I would be interested in season three about them opening a new White Lotus and maybe sending Mm. Valentina over there. I like the idea of the location being new to the White Lotus as well and having the staff contending with that. Mm, I like that idea. Okay. Anything else to say about this episode? Somehow this has gone longer than us talking about the whole season last week. (laughs) (laughs) um the only thing that i'll say is like i um you know i started making these memes for fun um at the i did them a little bit during season one and then like i started playing around with them for season two and then like it kind of grew and became a little bit of like a thing and i'm like i was saying to you sean earlier it's like i'm at parties now and like this is the thing people want to talk to me about and it's been like a tremendous gift i really talking to you here right now i love the world of this show. I like, you know, immersing my brain in this show. It feels so real to me. It feels so prescient. It feels important. It feels like such a, you know, um, a, a balm from all of the awfulness that's out there. And I just have found few shows in my life outside of really Buffy and Sex and the City and Survivor and the comeback that I just have the this level of emotional investment in. I'm interested in every photo shoot with every actor, every interview, every theory. 
I've just enjoyed the fact that Mike White created something that is so much more than a television show. Um, it's just a whole culture. And as sad as I am that it's only seven episodes, it's like seven episodes is perfect because it really felt like it climaxed this week in the perfect way where it's like our appetites like could not have been wetter for this episode. But I feel like if it would have kept going, it would have had to crest at some point. And I just feel like to go out now is perfect. I'm obviously really excited to do our mailbag episode. And we've talked about potentially, you know, going back and doing earlier episodes from this season and revisiting season one. But even so, I just like, I'm so grateful for this show coming out when it did. And I think it's just been a really like fun show to immerse oneself in. And I love how, how popular the show is. And I don't know, I'm just like, I'm really like very quite grateful um, to Mike White for, for the gift that is this show. Yes. Everything you said, plus it's so incredible that this is by a former survivor player and not just a former survivor player, but a former iconic runner-up of Survivor. And so it's been the absolute blessing to this podcast to be able to shoehorn it into our Survivor coverage because I really needed a place to talk about this show. And luckily, I had one. You know, there's going to be shows in the future that I feel similarly about, I hope, that that I don't have a place to talk about. So I'm going to have to figure out what to do in that scenario. But uh, it's just so cool to have this Survivor connection to it. And to that end, the screenshot for this episode that we're going to post on Drop Your Buffs pod on Instagram is going to be the shot of Mia and Lucci at the end, which is perfectly mirroring the final two of Micronesia, the iconic Parvati Shallow and Amanda Kimmel, our final girls who like really won. And so uh, in this case, I guess Parvati is Lucia and Amanda is Mia because Parvati gets the money at the end of the day. Right? Spoiler the alert money. if you haven't seen Micronesia. Yeah. So on that photo, what are people going to comment, Evan? Because mm, we did the Lotus last week, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's think. Because it's like we, we want to end. It's like joyous, right? Like we want to end on a note of joy. And we had, I mean, cause I was going to say, well, I was going to suggest the toy. Wait, wait, they did away with the toy gun, right? Yeah, gun no more. No, it's it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. Okay, and we don't have rope, because I was thinking of rope. What do you think is like an appropriate, like I want to do something that's like a Tanya send up? Respecting- pills? What? Pills? Pills. <laughs> well, she said her assistants are always stealing her pills. Great, let's do pills. And it's been a very pill-centric show. It has been. About that last pills week. in celebration of our fallen comrade, Tanya McQuad who I don't believe we heard her last name uttered this season. And it's nice to to say it here now, to speak it out loud. Um, that wraps up our, you know, prescient coverage of The White Lotus. However, if I may, tune in tomorrow where Sean will be crossing over to the Shut Up Evan cinematic universe where we will be joined by Esty Hyam um, of... Hi, I'm the Heim sisters to break down her involvement in season two of the White Lotus and to talk about the season on the whole, get some hot goss, which she has promised in advance. And we will hear from some of the stars of both season one and season two of the show. Sean, are you excited? I cannot wait. Heim is 
the best. I absolutely adore Haim. But one of the highlights of my summer was going to see them in Toronto, uh, where there was a very memorable moment that maybe I'll be able to bring up with her either on or off the show. And uh, it's just wild that I get to do this and to, you know, appear on Shut Up Evan. Wow, what a gift. (laughs) Well, honestly, this has been really fun for both you and I, because it's like we've been able to find an ancillary thing that we were already both into. And we've like found a way to like move it on to the thing that like allows us to connect with people. And what an exciting opportunity. I hope perhaps another White Lotus-esque show will come along. Maybe I will drag you into watching And Just Like That season two when the time comes. But I just don't think there's going to be the level of cultural conversation like, well, you know, there, there's always, look, if we're looking for survivor shows, we've always got Rafe's The Wheel of Time. Yeah, I don't know if that's available on Amazon. Prime. I don't know if that's going to be the one for me, but perhaps. Um, Likewise, a finale, uh, an, a, like an iconic queer man from the finale of a survivor season. Yeah. What is it about Who's those next? gays? Um, but anyway. Todd Herzog's. Yeah, okay. Hey, if you have things that you want us to bring up to Esty Heim about season two of The White Lotus, then feel free to send me an Instagram DM at DropYourBuffsPod to do that. And we will consider it for inclusion in our conversation with Esty Heim. If you enjoyed this, please rate and review it on Apple. I think you can rate on Spotify. Subscribe so you don't miss our future content. Uh, We will be doing a White Lotus mailbag, so you can send voicemails for us to answer on that episode. Very excited. And hey, we've got a Survivor finale this week as well. It is finale week. Here, drop your buffs. White Lotus finale, Survivor 43 finale. We will be back on Friday morning with our Survivor 43 finale coverage. It's not coming on Thursday this week. I'm sorry. Friday morning. So subscribe so that you don't miss that. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.